So, um, any parents in here? Anyone have parents in here? That'll get us all. So maybe you've watched this. Maybe you've been this. Um, You have a child who's outside, and they're playing. They're playing with their G.I. Joe action figure with the Kung Fu grip. They're playing on their tricycle. They're playing. Another sibling comes out the door and says to the playing sibling, you have to come in and do the dishes. What does the playing sibling say back? Who says so, right? You're my sister, you're my brother, who says so? By what authority are you commanding that I do that? What's your authority, right? Dad says, all right, fine, I'll put down my toy. Mom says, okay, I better run. Uh Uh-oh, mom's gonna get me. (laughs) We never grow out of that, do you know that? We're always asking, at some level, who says so? By what authority are you saying that? Who says so? So Solomon, who has been tackling the big questions of life, now tackles this one. So look down at chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. There's some authority there, right? Might is right at this point. You can't, if somebody is a lot stronger than you and they're telling you to do something and they want you to do it, it's going to happen. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? And here he asks the question. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So Solomon is now tackling the question of authority. When he asks the simple question, he doesn't give an answer. Not yet, at least. He asked a simple question. How do you know what's good? How do you know what's right? How do you know what's wrong? How do you know what's evil, right? Who knows what is good for a man? Who knows what's right? And who knows what's wrong? This is a very current debate. What's right? What's wrong? So if you've been paying attention to the news, you know this that there was an event that happened in New York, the state of New York, and a governor in Virginia made a comment on what happened in New York. You know what I'm talking about? New York passed the most liberal abortion law in America, which said this, that a woman can have an abortion all the way up until she's uh, in labor, right? So as broad as it gets. There are very many progressive nations around the world. That one tops them. So it's a massively progressive abortion law. Got signed in, it's the law in New York now. Well, a governor in Virginia made a comment on that law, and he's a doctor, and he said this. And you can read his comments and how it's being twisted and the spin on it all. But essentially, he said this. He said, as a doctor, he said, if a woman gives birth, the child should be kept alive 
And then the new mom and the doctor should have a discussion. And they're going to discuss whether the child is kept alive. Pretty amazing, right? The debate was, just a, just a short while ago, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Now the debate is, if a baby's born, the mom and the doctor can have a discussion about whether the baby continues to live. Pretty cra crazy to me. It's a massive movement. And what they're really saying is, who says? Who says that a mom should not have that authority? Who says? And it shouldn't surprise us because if you've paid attention to these things almost 20 years ago, there is a Harvard bioethicist by the name of Peter Singer who wrote in a book, he wrote this. He wrote that a healthy pig is more valuable to society than a handicapped child. Caused some shocks. And then he also wrote that new parents should have 30 days after a baby is born to decide whether they want the baby to continue to live, right? Those are his statements 20 years ago. So now what's happened is those institutions are training our doctors and our leaders 20 years ago. And now guess what? Now it's a public debate. Like maybe that should happen. New uh, governor of Virginia, right? It's exactly what Solomon's saying. Like who actually has the right to decide what's good? Is it strength? What is it? So today is going to be a very kind of uh, philosophical message, more apologetic in nature, because it seems like it's something we should talk about. And the question really is, who says so? Who has the authority to decide this is good and this is bad? This is the right way to treat children and this is the wrong way to treat, who says? And what I say today, what I would say is that there are four general authorities that we today look to to make those kind of decisions. And I believe three of them are flawed and only one is correct, okay? So that's what we're doing today. Number one who says in America today is science says. So we have become, as a culture, very occupied by the latest scientific study, by the latest coming, whatever, lab analysis. We are very scientific in nature. So we love science. We love studies. We love studies on sociology of our cultures because from that we say, okay, here's what's good. Here's what's right. Here's whatever, science. So let me ask this question. Has science ever been wrong? Yeah, right? Just in, in the short time that I paid attention, like science has changed all over the place on diet, right? Right? Fat now, remember when fat was bad for you? Now it's like superfood. Eat as much fat as you want, man. Bacon, chomp it down, right? It's like crazy, right? Chocolate's good for you. Did you know that? Chocolate is good for you. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, man. Chow down. It's health food, right? Dark chocolate. So, like, things have changed. Things are radically changing. At some point, trust me, whatever you're eating now, just keep eating it because a study will find it's health food. I'm just waiting for the one study that says long life and health come from eating ice cream because I'm going to live to a million, man. <laughs> right? So, science, we know, changes. Now, I love science. There are great things about science. You are probably holding or having your pocket on vibrate 
have in your pocket a device that you can communicate by video with just about anyone across the entire world. That's unbelievable to me. Like as a teenager, I could not imagine a world where that existed. And I'm not that old, right? I can't imagine that. And yet it exists in your pocket. It's unbelievable. Like science, what it's done with disease. Diseases that used to wipe out cities now are cured with $2 in antibiotics. Polio, gone. Anybody know a leper? Right? And 100 years ago, 200 years ago, man, that was like the freakiest disease around. And yet it doesn't even exist today. So science is awesome. Like the, the, the advantages of science are great. I'm not anti-science. But you have to know this about science. Science can tell you a lot of hows, but science can't tell you very many whys. So here's what science mainly does, a lot of. It does what's called deconstruction. It takes complex things, deconstructs them down to, the, to their base kind of processes, and then reconstructs up. Here's why you do what you do, okay? So, beauty. Science deconstructs beauty and says, beauty is just simply some random neurons in your brain firing and telling you that thing is beautiful, right? Love, love deconstructs random chemicals in your brain that tell you, hey, that's love, and then reconstructs it, right? That's what science does, just random neurons. So how does it work? Valentine's Day is coming. You're gonna say to your wife, hey, you fire my neurons, baby. <laughs> I mean, that's really what, that's science. Now, you'll probably get fired from your job, but we don't do that. But that's what science does. It just kind of deconstructs down and then reconstructs up. But when things have value, science falls flat on its face. So I'll give you two examples. Three. Number one, let's say I had two paintings up here. On this side right here, Pablo Picasso right? On this side right here, my five-year-old, Myron Heverly. They're going to look about the same. Myron's will be better probably, right? Now, if you ask science to tell which one's more valuable, what's science going to say? A piece of canvas, some pigment, some kind of glue that keeps the pigment on the paper. They're, they're exactly the same value. But who in here would choose Myron's photo picture over Picasso? Who would do that? Not me, no way. I got five kids to put through college. And if I choose Picasso, I got a counseling fund for Myron. So I need the money. I'll take, you know, make another one, bro. His mom probably would, not me. All right, but science can't tell you that. All right, a novel. Can science tell you if a novel's good? Right, does it analyze the pigment and analyze the, the binding? No, it can't tell you if a novel is good. So things of value, science falls flat. The human body. Deconstructing a human body, bioscience would say, you got about 15 gallons of water, you got some calcium, you've got some iron, some other trace elements. Your body is worth five bucks. My body's worth more because I have a gold tooth. Probably a hundred bucks, right? That's it. But who would say, no, humans are only worth five dollars? Nobody, okay? So science knows that. So here's what science did. Science says, yeah, value, we can tell some things, but not everything. So out of science comes this branch. It's a soft science. It's called philosophy. Philosophy means life or the study of it. So even science knows, yeah, we're not that good. 
Does he need his mom or his dad? We got one right there. Who says? <laughs> so science knows that. So out of science comes this branch called philosophy. The study of life is all it is. Has anyone taken a high school, college course on philosophy? Raise your hand. Did you understand that course? Or are you like, what in the world? You guys are insane, right? Because if you study philosophy, here's what you find out. They don't agree, right? Go back to maybe the founder of Western philosophy. His name is Thomas Aquinas. All Thomas Aquinas did was this. He took Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle and baptized them into the church and said, that's what we believe. So then out of, out of, after him, you have another Catholic guy named Descartes who says, you're wrong, Aquinas. You can't take history to figure out what's good, what's right. You have to have what he called radical doubt. You have to take everything off the table, clear it all, and see what's left. So Descartes said, he has his famous saying from that, when you cleared everything off by radical doubt, he said, there's one thing that remains. I think, therefore, I am. He said, the only thing that makes humans good is that we can use our brains, is that we think that's what makes a human. I say, Descartes, come to Boatnik. You won't say that anymore. <laughs> right? So, and then out of Descartes was, no, no, this guy, Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant said, no, Descartes, you're wrong. The only way that you know what's good and right is to have the four duties. You have a duty to keep your promises. You have a duty to not commit suicide. You have a duty to not be lazy. And you have a duty to be helpful. He goes, that's what's good. But then off of Immanuel Kant comes a much more modern lady named Ayn Rand who said, uh-uh, Kant, you are wrong. The only thing that is good is for a man or woman to work for their own happiness. You should never, ever help somebody else in their happiness. That's up to them. Every person must work for their own happiness. Ayn Rand. But then out of that, you have John Paul Sartre, who says, you guys are all wrong. That the only way you can determine what's good is cultural. That whatever the, the culture that somebody grew up in, that's what's good for them. And no other culture must judge that culture. So you have him going to the Nuremberg trials when the Nazis were on trial saying, you guys are incorrect. It's wrong for you to judge the Nazis. It's one culture judging another culture. You can't do that, right? The problem with that is, has culture changed? My example is, go back 700 years to Norway. If you were a male Viking 700 years ago, what was the good life for you? Rape and pillage, right? 700 years forward. You go to Norway today, one of the most progressive countries in the world. What does a good Norwegian male do? He fights for the equality of gender. Very different than his predecessor, right? Totally, radically different. So... Sartre would say, it's culture. Culture defines it. And for one culture to judge another culture is wrong. Is that with us today? Oh, it's huge. Huge. Does that work? I would say no. And there's an article by an anthropologist. And the article is, and you can Google it, anthropologist, comma, cultural relativism, which is what we're talking about, cultures. What's right is relative to that culture, cultural relativism. And then the last thing is basic human rights. 
And here's what happened to her. She goes to school, becomes an anthropologist. Her science tells her, what you do as an anthropologist is you go, you look at a culture, but you do not judge that culture. You take your notes, you do as scientific as possible, you keep yourself separate from them, you don't get involved in them, you never judge that culture. Because that culture is growing up the way that culture is supposed to grow up. Don't judge it. Right? So she does that. She becomes an expert on Sudanese cultures. Goes to the Sudan and studies them. Here's what she finds happening over and over and over again. Girls, seven, eight, nine years old, are taken and they're, it's female circumcision, which is the nice way of putting it. It's female genital mutilation, a brutal act. And as her training, science tells her, you just take notes on that. It's relative. It's their culture. You can't judge that culture. That's what they say is right or wrong. But she comes to a point, a crisis in her own life where she said, I can't do that anymore. There's basic human rights. And what they are doing to children is wrong. I don't care what culture it is. So she has to push back against the very science that's telling her this is what says, this is right, this is wrong. She goes, no way, I can't do that anymore. There are basic human rights that we know this. We know there's basic things that are stamped on us because we are the imago Dei that says that's right and that's wrong. And she found that out, pushed back. All right, so science, I say, it doesn't do it. One of my favorite authors, his name is John Lennox. He says that science can tell you that putting strychnine in your grandma's tea will kill her. But science can't tell you if you should put strychnine in your grandma's tea to get your inheritance, right? It falls flat. So look out, science has a great spot, not telling you what is good or right. It doesn't have that position. It can't, it doesn't have value. So the second thing you gotta come to then, if science doesn't say, then maybe democracy says. Rule by majority. So if 51% say this is right, New York, state of New York. If 51% say it's okay up to labor to have an abortion, then so be it. Sorry if you're the 49%. Now, how does that work? Is that a good way to determine what's right or wrong, the majority? No, just read history. Often, the majority become a tyranny to the minority. Just go read about Bosnia in the 1990s, very recent, where the majority said, we don't want you in our country anymore, and we're going to slaughter you. They slaughtered people. So no, no way, right? In America, by the way, we're not a pure democracy. Do you know that? We're a republic. What that means is, yes, we can vote on things, but there are these documents called the Bill of Rights and the Constitution that are to protect us against the tyranny of the majority. And here's why this matters. Because many people get their right and wrong based on majority. I'll give you an example. So I have this study at home that said they interviewed college students and they found 87%, put that in your mind for a second, 87% of college students cheat. That's unbelievable. You go back not that long and it was 20%. So this hockey stick of, man, 87% cheat? They asked them, why do you cheat? Guess what their answer was? Everybody's doing it, right? I just say, where's your mom? Because moms would say, if everybody was jumping off a bridge, would you jump off the bridge? Like, majority doesn't make it right, right? But that's the way they've made the decision. 
right? It's almost like a circular reasoning. Well, everybody's doing it, so I'm doing it. Just pray that those cheaters don't become your doctor, right? I mean, it gets serious. You go into their, their room or their study or whatever, and they have on their desk heart surgery for dummies. Like, hold on a second. Let me see here. Let me Google that. Right? Ah, study. Right? It matters. We have to be careful. The majority rule does not work well. Just read history. So majority says, mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. So you've got science says it falls. Democracy says mm, it falls. The third one is I get to say. Who says? Me. Live and let live. The 1960s slogan, right? The hippie ideal of, hey, just live and let live, bro. Really what that means, though, is this. You get to be God. You get to say what's right or wrong. Now, what's the problem with that? Personally, I like hippies. Um, I like the vehicles they decide to drive. I think they're way cool. Um, I like organic gardens. I like non-confrontational life. I've met, there's a lot of things I say, ha, that's cool. But the problem with this idea of every individual just deciding what's right or wrong is here's what happens. You trample on two things. You cannot have these two things, trust and justice. If each person gets aside their own morality, what you end up with is no trust and no justice. Here's how. So do you trust your neighbor to put the property lines in the right spot? Do you trust your neighbor to put the driveway on his side and not on your side? Does anybody trust that? Just, oh, no, do whatever, dude, I trust you. No, it's why we have law and courts and police. It's why you put a lock on your door. It's why you have neighborhood watch. Watch that neighbor. I don't trust them, right? That's it. So you don't have trust. You can't. Number two, and this one takes a little bit to get to, you can't have justice. If each person is their own God, you can't have justice. So let me try to tease this out. Backing up, Solomon writes this book. He says in chapter one, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to look at life under the sun. I'm gonna look at life as if there is no God. As if you and I were simply products of a billion little accidents. That's how we came into existence. As if one day, this entire cosmos that we know will disappear and life will be gone. That's how I'm gonna look at life, right? So Solomon's saying, if you came from an insignificant series of accidents and you are going to end in insignificance, what does that mean you are today? Insignificant. It's the only thing it can be, right? It's just, it's linear. That's all it is. So you're just, I am just, we're just accidents, okay? If we're just accidents, you can't abuse an accident. Let me try to illustrate this. Let's say you go to a potter. And this potter, she is making this beautiful tea kettle. And she's forming it, and it's incredible, and you're watching it. And as she's forming it, this big chunk of clay just kind of whips off the wheel and lands on the ground, just goes splat, just a lump of clay. And it goes there. And she finishes this beautiful tea kettle. It has purpose. It has beauty. It's awesome. And it dries out. And so does a little chunk of clay. It dries out. And so the, the tea kettle is put up on a shelf, displayed for sale. And then the lump of clay just lays there. The accident does. In, in you come. You see the tea kettle. You pull it down. You look at it. 
You think, oh, this would be so good. Tea would taste so brilliant if I had this beautiful tea kettle. My life would be wonderful if I had it. It's incredible. And then as you're thinking this, your son bumps you and you drop the tea kettle and it shatters into a thousand pieces. Is that a tragedy? Yes, right? This thing that had beauty and value and intrinsic worth and a purpose now does not, right? It has no purpose now. It was abused. Its right purpose was violated, right? Can we agree on that? Okay, same thing happens. This time you come in and you don't grab the beautiful, purposeful tea kettle. You go over, you pick up the accident lump of clay and you're looking at this accident lump of clay like, hmm, and then your kid bumps you, you drop the lump of clay, it bursts into a thousand pieces. Is that tragic? No, why? Because it's an accident. It has no purpose. It has no value. You can't abuse an accident. Listen to me very carefully. If you go with, everybody gets to say, and we're just this insignificant series of accidents, you can never have justice because you can't abuse an accident. So rape or molesting or whatever it is, you go back to start. He was right. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as justice. But would anyone agree with that? No. Because we have stamped on our hearts the image of God. And we know I have value and I have purpose. And when somebody treats me that way or does that to me, it is wrong. It violates the purpose and value that I have. We all know that. That's why the I say thing, just live and let live, does not work. If you fundamentally drive it to its conclusion, it cannot work. There only remains one thing left. If science says, and that fails, democracy, ooh, look out for that. If you and me, man, look out, trust and justice are gone, it leaves one last authority. Who says? God says. The psalmist would say in Psalm 119, verse 68, he would say, God is good, and he does what's good. So the Bible says, if you want to know what's good, and you want to know what's right, you look at God, that he is the standard of good and right. Solomon comes up in chapter 12 from his agnostic, under the sun, no God looking at life. And when he comes up, he says this in chapter 12, verse 13. He says, hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands. The word fear there doesn't mean like, "Ah, I'm afraid of God. It means be in awe of who he is and do what he says. He defines what's good, right? And chapter three says this, he's put that in our hearts. The reason why we know we have value and we have purpose and we're supposed to be significant and there's a right way to use a human and a wrong way to use a human is because God has stamped onto us those values. And every culture resonates with those values. Yes, that's right, that's true, and that's wrong. And I think if you wanna know goodness, you just look at Jesus. If you want to know what's good and right, how to live well, Jesus is goodness in the flesh. God in the flesh, goodness on display. We looked at that video. In that video, I talked about how when Jesus comes, he's constantly front-loading acceptance of people. Woman caught in adultery. Woman with five husbands and now living with a man. Dude who was the most hated person in Israel. Come, let's have dinner constantly. And guess what happened? 
People flocked to him. Why? They said, that's the way you live life. Not this in and out thing where you, you shove people out because they don't quite match. It's this acceptance of people, this love of people. Oh, that's good, right? Heroes. Like we are inundated with hero movies, aren't we? Like one, one a week, some new hero movie. Why is that? Because our hearts resonate with that story. The story of the strong, protecting, loving, giving themselves for the weak, which is the very opposite of evolution, where it's survival of the fittest. It's the opposite, the antithesis of it, right? The, the, the last one that I paid attention to was Hunger Games. That movie starts with the weak sister being selected, and she's going to be slaughtered in these games. And what happens? The strong, heroic, older sister says, no, take me instead. Why do we love that movie? Maybe you don't. <laughs> Why does that movie resonate? Make a million, billion bucks, whatever it made. Why? Because that's the story of Jesus, the strong one giving himself for us. And we say, that's right. That resonates. That's true. And when people act in ways that look like Jesus, guess what we do? We cheer it. Why? Because it resonates with our heart. I'll give you an example. So uh, today's Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, they decided to celebrate it on my birthday. Thank you. <laughs> Who's going to win? Rams. Rams. Who's Rams? Who's Patriot? Who could care less? Okay, forget this illustration. It's not going to work now. You guys just don't even care. <laughs> so the Rams have this wide receiver, all-star wide receiver. His name is Brandon Cooks. Yeah. Brandon's, Brandon Cooks. Uh, Great receiver, outspoken believer in Jesus Christ, and an Oregon State beaver. Yes. That's why the Rams are winning. <laughs> he was with the Patriots last year, and guess what? They won. they won. I'm just saying. So don't count Tom Brady out. So Brandon Cooks this week, this is what he did. He bought round-trip airfare, hotel reservations, tickets, meals for a janitor and his son. And, and, and no, he wasn't going to tell anybody about it. Somehow it was found out. So then they're asking him. He's like, dude, I love this guy. He's what makes this team work. When you hear about that, what do you say? Do you say, Ann Rand? That's stupid. He needs to pursue his own happiness. No one should help him do that. Or do you say, that's brilliant. What a great man. We say, that's brilliant. What a cool gesture. You know why? Because it's what Jesus did for us. He who was wealthy spent himself on us, on the cross, so that we could have a ticket, not to the Super Bowl, but to the Super Bowl of Super Bowls, eternity with him. And when we see moments like that, we say, yes, that's awesome. That's good. It resonates with us. Jesus is goodness. He is goodness. He defines it. Read him. Well, Matt, if we're supposed to obey God, here's my fear. He may ask me to do things that I don't want to do and tell me I can't do things that I do want to do. Well, that's what I don't like. Okay? Read 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. I'll summarize it. God loves us. We love him. And then it says this in verse 3. His commands are not burdensome. Here's the argument. You got to almost read the whole book of John, 1 John to get it. Here's the argument. It's this. Listen, God loves you. He has dedicated himself to your goodness. 
So his rules, his laws, what he's asking you to do are out of love and to give you the good life, okay? And we obey, here's why we obey. It's not like this. So I, I, this happened this morning. So I kind of thought of it and I'm throwing it in. So I took a shower this morning. I got out of the shower. Thank, you can be thankful I took a shower. Smell good. So I, and, and there was a couple of towels on the ground, and I step out, and I know that my wife has asked this. She has asked, please pick up your towels. Like there is no towel fairy that comes in in the middle of the night and like scoops up towels and takes them away. Pick up your towels. So I know she's asked that, right? So I get out of the shower, and I drive, and I see the towels. So I grab the towels together, and I take them out, and I throw them in the washing machine. Now, why did I do that? Did I do that because I was afraid of my wife? Oh, she's going to kill me. Great, oh no, get the towels. No. Did I do it to demonstrate how much I love my wife? Did I grab the towels and like wake all the kids up? Kids, look what I am doing here. See how I love your mother. See how I, did I do that? No, no one would know about it, but I just told you guys. (laughs) Why did I do it? Because I know my wife loves me and she's for my good. And because she loves me, and she's for my good. Man, I do her commands. I, I want to. Not because I'm afraid she's going to get me. Not to prove something to her, but because I love her back. And I know that she's always for my good. She wants the best for our home and the best for our kids. And I say, I want to cooperate in that. That's what First John 5 is saying. Listen, when you understand God's nature, who he is, how he gave his wealth for you, the only reasonable response is to say, I want to get in line with that because that's the good life. And when we come to the table, that's what we celebrate. We're eating and drinking and saying, you gave everything for us. Get my heart in line with your goodness. Help me to live in a way that resonates with that goodness because I know it's right. That's what we eat and drink. And so Jesus, this day, I pray that we would be a people that understand the joyful submission that comes from knowing your goodness and your love for us. That we get to get in line with you. Get to live a life that resonates real goodness and quality that you said I've come that you might have life in it more abundantly. And so this day, may we eat and we drink of your goodness. And may you plant into our hearts both the will and the power to live those kind of lives, to treat people like you treated people, to love people like you love people to be in awe of who you are and to keep your commands. Plant that life in us. And we ask this in your name, amen.